0: Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And a while back we had an episode called Movies That Took Time to Love. And so we decided let's do the flip of that. And so this week's topic is going to be Movies We Fell Out of Love With. And last time we had uh, Greg on the show. Unfortunately, we don't have him this time we didn't even invite him we're we're jerks no
1: No, i mean well it's because greg has such an abundance of love in his heart that's
0: the reason that we knew it's not because he's so hard to schedule at all
1: no it's because there's nothing he's ever fallen out of love with he's just you know he's like superman he's like a friend just (laughs) bountiful bundle of positivity um yeah and this also i mean partly it was because greg is hard to schedule but it was also because i think it made sense this is our 99th episode 99 um, wow. yeah mm-hmm. uh who'd have thunk we'd make it <laughs> to even nine episodes um but it felt like you know as we count down to our episode 100 which we do have something special planned uh this would be a fun topic and a sort of like getting to know us a little bit more right. kind of thing because we're really not just talking about the films we're talking about our specific relationships to them um and that made sense in that context for it to just be you and I. Um Yeah, that's true. You know, especially because episode a hundred is going to be very guest centric. So then this one is like this one's just for the boys.
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting, like exploring your own personal history with certain films and and how it changes over time or changing attitudes towards films. I think that's always an interesting thing to explore. So Mm-hmm. i and i i know for my picks i kind of tried to catch different reasons for that reasons why mo- movies might change so i tried to pick really different picks as i went through like i didn't just want them all to be like my opinion changed on this for this reason and then the same one and then the same one i think right i think i've got very different reasons for for why so
1: yeah, I think mine. Well, all of mine are in some form or another. I thought it was really great as a teenager, and then I rewatched it when I was older, and I was like, "Huh, it's not as great." None of them are films that I would straight up say I dislike. Although my first movie comes the closest to that, but all of them are ones that I thought were some degree of great at one point or another, and then reflecting on it later, decided I don't actually think it is. But I think the reasons for why those films seemed impressive to me and why that changed is different across the three picks um but it is like and I didn't necessarily plan it but it is very much like teenage Daniel thought these were great and adult Daniel doesn't uh there almost was an exception to that because before a recent rewatch which will be my last moment I was going to go with I'm sure you're grateful that I didn't scary movie one uh But that was also no, I kind of wish you did actually. (laughs) Why you want the excuse to watch that?
0: Oh, oh, I've seen that one, but like ages ago.
1: Well, that's the thing is like, so that movie came (laughs) out in 2000. I wouldn't have seen it in theaters on account of I was six years old and it was rated R, but I did see it pretty young, like 10, maybe even younger. (laughs) Oh, dear. And that's the thing is like, well, I thought it was really funny, but I was also like 10 and watching something way before I should have like that really skews it. And obviously age is going to play a factor in this, but I thought that specifically is less that like, it's a movie that I really love so much as it was a comedy that I thought was really funny when I was a dumb child <laughs> and I clear. had no context for it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and also because like, I think those, that series is pretty uniformly viewed as trash. Um,
0: I would think so. At least it should be. There's certainly
1: a a contingency of uh, millennials and probably Gen Zers who think like, oh, yeah, it's so funny. The same people who have conflated uh, fellow Wayne's family product, uh, White Chicks, uh, erroneously elevated. These films are all trash, but you watch them at a a young enough age and you have fond memories of finding them funny when you're a kid. And then you rewatch them and you're like, wow, this is unspeakably bad. So um, I got to but...
0: ask because I, <laughs> you know, I am subscribed to your Letterboxd feed where I noticed that you not only rewatched Scary Movie, but every other movie in the franchise. So I got to ask, what's up?
1: Well, first of all, I haven't seen Scary <laughs> Movie 5 yet.
0: Okay. I've, and I've, that's the only one I've never seen. Forgot how many there were. I have no idea. There's five. Okay. Um
1: yeah, I mean, again, like talking about like millennial nostalgia, my partner watched them when she was young. She thinks they're really funny. So or at least had these fond memories of them. And when she found a, a DVD four pack at the used video <laughs> no, store,
0: it just gets worse.
1: Don't worry, it, it's not on the shelf. It's <laughs> any of those are like stuffed into a corner. They, they're they not they're not really part of the collection. It's like a rental. Um, but she wanted to watch them or at least the first three. And then at that point, I'm like, well, we've come this far. Let's just watch the fourth (laughs) one, Uh, which was useful for science because it's both, it's not really that much worse than the others, but it is also like, this is probably the worst one, or at least the most embarrassing one, at least the one where it's like the pathetic downfall of the spoof movie into just completely empty pop culture references with no sense of, uh, uh, dignity to say the least but also discipline or humor or wit it just meets its ultimate completion like there's nothing here Sounds um, like a blast yeah they're pretty bad uh so but i was like i mean i could i mean we've i basically talked about it enough that it's like i chose it at this point um but it was it was like I, what am i gonna say like yeah i thought it was funny when i was a 10 year old but then i watched it at 29 and i was like wow this is actually not a very good movie shocker you know, Chocolate so I, the, the movies I've chosen are all, I mean, I wouldn't say they're universally liked. Uh, fun fact, I know at least two of them were hated by one Pauline kale which her and I don't often line up that well, but I suppose we are tonight. Um, but they're movies that are generally considered good movies. They're held in some esteem and high regard. Um, I mean, at least two of them are like, would be described as classics of a sort. Right. Yeah. So...
0: All right. Well, let's kick us up. Uh, Why don't you kick us off with, I'm assuming the one that Pauline Kale didn't talk about.
1: I don't know if she had anything to say about it at this point. I think she was pretty retired, but that's uh, Man on the Moon from 1999. And I think this is an interesting one to talk about because it's, it's a biopic. And it's a good example of how when you're dealing with any film that's based on a true story, and the story that it's based on is inherently interesting, and you're not familiar with it. That can elevate a film a lot. The first time I saw this film, I had no idea who Andy Kaufman was. So this film taught me who, what his life was, what his art was, and why he was important. And just getting this dive into this bizarre comedian, but also like anti-comedian, and his weird antics and, and willingness mm-hmm. to really deliberately test and provoke an audience was fascinating the first time i saw it because i had no idea who this guy even was and there was little things too like so much of his legacy is wrapped up in the um the stuff he did with jerry lawler and memphis wrestling which i had no idea about and even though i was like kind of not watching wrestling at the time i first saw this when jerry lawler pops up i'm like oh my god that's jerry lawler playing himself it's not like just a wrestle man it's like the actual guy and in that scene it's also jim ross who's the commentator still doing commentary. So that stuff was really exciting. And it was just neat to learn about this bizarre performer and how unique and still exceptional he is. Like there's a couple of, there's definitely comedians since who have deliberately pushed it like anti-comedy and not giving an audience the typical laughs, but he still strikes me as being pretty singular as a performer. And then I rewatched the film a couple years ago and was like, Oh, you take, you know, that knowledge and you know it already. This is a really humdrum, boring biopic. It follows the formula to a T. It's got the, you know, birth to death story. It has the big summary of all the stuff he's famous for. You have an actor doing a big prestige showcase and Jim Carrey's like fine in it. I wouldn't say he's particularly amazing, but he's like, look at the mimicry. It's so amazing. And it's just a very... Not Again, not bad. It's perfectly competent. Milos Forman was a good director, but it's a very dry biopic. And the moment I'm choosing comes from the very opening of the film, and it's Andy, Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman, directly addressing the viewer. And he talks about how what you're going to see is a fictionalized sort of composite and summary of his life. And he addresses the fact that what we're going to look at is not real, per se. And I like that moment as a way to start the story of Andy Kaufman. I think that's very appropriate. But I also think it's kind of insane that that's the best the movie will do when it comes to bringing Kaufman's style into the style of the film. Because Kaufman's whole thing at its core in a lot of the bits he was doing was this idea of just, is this a bit... Like, is this thing you're doing, like, actually an authentic, like, mistake or freak out? Or, you know, like, are you actually wrestling these women's wrestlers and beating them up? And really, it's in the parlance of wrestling language. It is a work. But it's blurring those lines where you're not really sure um to what degree this is the truth and what degree it's performative and where those lines end. And if any genre in film loans itself to that kind of uh style, it's the biopic which so often presents what it's doing as the unvarnished truth, and yet we know it's rarely, if ever, that. It's always simplifying things and compositing characters, multiple people into one character, leaning on contrivances for the sake of storytelling, omitting stuff at the behest of family or uh, estates who have investment in the film. You know, so much of biopics are these weird... um, these, these weird sort of like exercises in authenticity and reality. And if any, if any person, his biopic should have toyed with those ideas. It's Andy Kaufman's, the guy spent his life exploring those questions in his comedy. Why is the biopic we get of him so boringly straight? So that's my moment. I think it's, Indicative both of why I liked the movie when I first saw it, because it was like an interesting introduction to this character. And then the movie that presented, uh, that that unfolded, was like, wow, what an interesting person. But also on in, on reflection and rewatches, it's like, wow, for a movie that's playing, that's telling the story of someone who loved to meld fact and fiction and really test an audience in keeping up with what was real and what was not, it's embarrassing that this is the best the movie can do.
0: That's, that's a good, it's a good moment and a good point. And the interesting thing about your moment is that it's kind of like the only time the movie itself does something Kaufman esque. That's not a recreation of things that he had already done. It's like, this is, this is actually the movie doing something Kaufman would have done if he was still around, but it's still them inventing that, like trying to get Mm -hmm. a style, but then yeah, they don't really do that anymore. Um, I saw this a few years ago now. It was one of the film club picks. Uh, and I I I am with you. I found it as pretty typical biopic which was disappointing. The only things that really grabbed me were the recreations of his bits. And I'm like, well, how much credit do you give the movie that? Because, like, I could go catch a... Try to find YouTube clips of him actually doing that or something. Because that's mm-hmm. what I enjoyed is, like... Oh, did he actually do this? But in the context of the movie, all everything surrounding it was, yeah, you're right. It was kind of just blah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you think like, I realize the biopic is often a really restrictive framework. I mean, it's, it's a genre we've picked on a lot in the show. Even the episode we did in tribute to biopics was kind of, these usually suck, but these ones are really good.
0: Yeah, I'm um, fine with that. I'm okay with being anti-biopic and yeah,
1: yeah. I mean it's it's a it's a worthwhile position to hold. You know, why are you booing the I'm right comes to mind. But uh, <laughs> but at the same time, like there have been filmmakers who have explored that both in the context of you know making a film that even when it's not explicitly showing things from that person's life is done in their style, like the main one that jumps to mind, which is pre-Man on the Moon for that matter is Paul Schrader's Mishma, A Life in Four Chapters, which is also filmed and and formally organized in ways that are reminiscent of the real Mishma's art. And that's a really bold and provocative thing to do where the film itself and the way it's constructed resembles the artist. Uh, But then you look at something like, and this is admittedly after Man on the Moon, but the Bob Dylan biopic in quotes, uh, I'm Not There, which is... You know, six different actors playing six different Dylans in a way that's directly addressing the ways in which Dylan's life folds into myth and folklore. And the movie doesn't have to say that's what it's about, it just presents it. And then that idea resonates, even though, and it's also a film that, again, by its nature, is playing with things about Dylan that are not real. A lot of the Dylans aren't even playing Dylan by name. Um, I don't know if any of them are actually, now that I think about it. And it's like Man on the Moon could have done. Similar things to that, or even thinking about like the recent Weird Al biopic slash parody, which I still haven't seen because it's a Roku original, and (laughs) I guess we Canadians don't get to you know enjoy that. But uh, you know, just thinking about how the film presents things like Weird Al's whirlwind affair with Madonna, things that are obviously untrue, and folding them into the biopic formula as a source of humor. And I'm not saying the Andy Kaufman movie should have been that broad. It probably shouldn't have been. But it's like you can do things like that. Right. And it would be interesting to think like maybe the film starts with just like little normal things that a biopic would fudge for storytelling reasons. But as it goes on, they get more and more amped up. And again, the film kind of teases that maybe it will do that by having Andy address the audience from the start. And then it just Mm -hmm. gone. That promise goes nowhere.
0: I mean, they even go to the point where. They try to convince you that him talking is going to be the whole movie, and they actually like start playing credits and everything. Like they really lean into that moment, mm-hmm. and that's it. That's that's all they're really going to give you. Is, yeah, then it's gone. Of it. you know, yeah, yeah, you are right. And then at it's the very
1: end, they leave the tease of like, "Well, oh, maybe Andy faked his death," which is like a fun idea, but again, it's like, why are these the only sort of times that the film <clears throat> is playing with? You know the the nature of his performativity and, and right. trying to embody that in its filmmaking choices. Um, it's disappointing because I really feel like he is a unique enough person. And honestly, for someone so creative and unconventional, it's doubly disappointing that his biopic is so ploddingly by the numbers.
0: It really is. That I, it could I, be
1: about almost any comedian from that period.
0: Yeah. I I very much share the same opinion with you. Yeah, it is disappointing. What could have been <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: crazy that Milosh made, even though it's not really a biopic in a lot of ways, but like Amadeus, if we count it, right, is like the best one, or at least one of them. And, and it's that... partly because it doesn't fall into the same boring style and structure that most right. do.
0: And it almost is like he's tapping into Mozart because it's very like grandiose, right? And the and dramatic, and that's kind of like what his music was like. Mm-hmm. And In that sense, he is kind of tapping into the artist. Yep. It is disappointing he's not doing more of it here. Obviously, there even... was some willingness to do it
1: by your moment, but... Sure. I, I would even say, too, the fact that, like... Well, here's another example, and I forgot this till right now, but the screenwriters for the movie are the screenwriters of Ed Wood. And Ed mm, Wood yeah, is a biopic another... <clears> that brilliantly replicates the style. Like, it looks looks better than an ed wood movie because tim burton's a bit better of a visual <laughs> stylist but it's replicating that um 50s b-movie look and even mm-hmm. the performances have that quality to them uh the music has that quality and it doesn't overplay that but that element is there and it it helps when you're doing a subject that you know worked in black and white because then as soon as you put that on you're already halfway there but you know there, there's so many ways to think about like the ways in which this could have played with truth and, uh, and fibbing that a little bit and trying to get one over on the audience. Like it's such a wasted opportunity. And again, like seeing it the first time, not knowing who Andy Kaufman was, it was so exciting just to learn about this weird guy. But Mm -hmm. once you know about Andy Kaufman, it's like, Oh, okay. Like it's, it's actually very safe and ordinary. And then the more you think about it, it's like, it's actually kind of a travesty that it's so safe and ordinary because he deserves better
0: i agree yeah well jim carrey will be disappointed in you
1: that's he seems disappointed in most things <laughs> in interviews i can live with that <laughs> all right well
0: i'm gonna go to uh, my pick is kind of similar in the sense that i saw it you know when i was a teenager as well um, and really had to reevaluate it which is american history x from 1998 and American history X is basically about Ed Norton is a, a neo-Nazi and he goes to jail and he comes back reformed and he's trying to get his younger brother to get out of that neo-Nazi gangbanger life. Basically. Um, when I first saw this movie, I was blown away by it. Like it's the dramatization of everything that's happening here. the, the shock value at certain points in the movie um the the message of like the themes of racism and prejudice that go on in the film i saw this movie i thought this is like amazing this is a deep profound movie um and i of course bought the dvd and it came in remember those snap case dvds back in the day I seem to remember, for some reason, that sticks out in my mind, like that snap case DVD, but... Uh...
1: Knowing your your standards <laughs> for collecting, I would not at all be surprised if that's informed your declining view of this movie. That's, that's the level. reason. That's where I was <laughs> leading to. No, <laughs> My moment was I had to pull these snaps to get the disc open. I was like, what the hell? F-. minus. It,
0: it was like a little bit bigger than all the other cases. What's going on? <laughs> 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 but as I kind of, you know... As I grew up and started watching the movie a little bit more and a little bit more, it the impact kept lessening. And I realized, I don't know that this movie's that great. And the scene I'm going to point out, I think, is a good indicator why. So the the movie has a storyline of Ed Norton coming back into into life and trying to put all the pieces back together and save his brother, but there's constantly flashbacks and the flashbacks are usually black and white. And there's one in particular where him and his gang, including the leaders played by Stacy Keach, who's kind of like their mentor. That's full of like hate speech and stuff. Um, they're playing basketball and they're playing basketball with against a bunch of a group of black men. And so, of course, there's going to be some antagonism there, especially when he pulls off his shirt and has a big swastika on his chest. That's going to ruffle some feathers. But this basketball scene, they basically make a (laughs) polite
1: way to phrase that.
0: Like a very Canadian like ruffles of feathers. Yeah. Um, But they're going to have this basketball game and there's a bet that basically whoever wins the other person, whoever loses the game has to leave the court and never play there again. So they're basically playing for uh, the court itself and it's a really weird vibe because this scene is played up and and of course Ed Norton and his his white power gang end up winning and the music is really overly dramatic and they play it up like the scene of triumph and it's very very odd because these are not people you want to be cheering on. And the reason that they're doing this is not a reason you want to be cheering them on. And obviously the director is not playing this up for triumph. Like that's not obviously not his goal. Cause that's not his purpose of this movie. But is it a sense of irony? If it is, it's not coming off very well. Is it is what's he trying to say with this And then I realized it doesn't matter what he's saying with it, what he's trying to say, he's not saying it. And the intention that he's going for is not working. This scene does not work. It looks like the director is on the side of these neo-Nazis. And then I realized, yeah, maybe this movie is not as mature as I once thought it was. I don't think that this director has as deft of a hand as I once thought he does. And then you start seeing other parts of the movie where you're like, okay, I, I kind of know what you're going for, but again, you seem like you're being celebratory of this kind of subculture. And I don't think you're hitting the notes that you want to hit. And so the movie just really started to fall apart for me. And I obviously don't think that it's very deep and meaningful anymore. And it just, it's not, it's to the point where I just don't even want to watch it anymore. So there we go.
1: Yeah. Um, I set off Mike before we started. This is basically the poster child of a movie that seems really deep when you're in high school. Cause I had more or less the exact same reaction to it when I first saw it and thought it was like one of the, again, I would have been like 13, 14, one of the greatest sort of movies I'd ever seen. I think if you go on my letterbox, I still have it ranked at like five stars. Cause I haven't seen it in a long time now. And that is just preserved. Um, and I think you're seen as like probably the pivotal scene for exposing the core flaw at the heart of the film, which is that even though narratively uh, it's a story that expresses uh, a um, expresses neo-Nazism and white power in an explicitly negative light, views it as destructive, views it as hateful, views it as immoral the imagery in the film struggles with actually conveying that and the mm. and the other formal elements. And this scene is the one where it's the most apparent because, yeah, it's shot and edited and scored like a triumphant victory, which in the minds of the Ed Norton character, maybe it is in that moment, but the film should have the, the sense to also realize that it's morally repugnant and that does not come through at all. Um, and especially when it's like, Again, that question of like to what end and what is this expressing and what is it trying to express, and all it really comes through in this specific moment is this glorification and celebration of these people. And that's something that runs through a lot of the film because even though it is, again, on paper, an anti neo Nazi film, like it ends with this speech about hate is baggage and you have to let go and all this stuff, the imagery is in some ways bordering on like fetishistic of Mm -hmm. white power imagery. And I wonder, you know, that could be a limitation in direction. It could express on some level, a fascination with the filmmakers on, of this imagery, which is not entirely uncommon. Like you think about how, you know, the aesthetics of Nazism inflict our cultural and cinematic depictions of villains writ large. You know, the fact that like, I mean, the obvious example is like the Stormtroopers in Star Wars, but even like the ending of A New Hope with the parade is shot for shot, really similar to some of the scenes in Triumph of the Will, which is really bizarre. And that's kind of a whole other can of worms to untangle. But it's like, you know, on some level, there is, I think, something poignant about thinking through how uh, sort of fascinated the culture is with this imagery, even while explicitly saying that it's repugnant but I also don't think the film is necessarily exploring that if it's trying to it's not coming across it just plays up as as uh as glorification and the first time you see it and especially as a kid one you know it the shock value and the movie's also like it's got this these images of like white nationalism of neo-nazism of extreme violence but in a very um grim and bleak setting it's not like an action movie but you've got these really uh upsetting scenes that are shocking in a way that when you're a teenager and you're still just starting to dive into films that are more adult this feels really adult um and then because it has this message that in theory is anti-hate it seems like you've watched something really sophisticated and profound and then you kind of reflect on it and it's like I don't know if it actually is. I mean, even thinking about the the most horrific crime the Ed Norton character does where he really curb stomps a black man um, in cold blood. Like he has him down and, and beaten. Yeah. There's no need. To, he just does it because he's a violent racist murderer. Um, And it's like, you look at that imagery and there's like these slow motion shots of Ed Norton and it's black and white. So you got these like totally dark background and he's like this luminous whiteness and he's in like, like really good shape. And they are, even if we as a viewer look at those images and think that's repulsive to an audience that is maybe overtly white supremacist, or even just less sort of defined in their principles, they can be very seductive and powerful. Um, And I'm, I'm weary often of giving too much credit to like, well, this image can be interpreted the wrong way because anything can be interpreted the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I've thought that in relation to, I think Breaking Bad illustrates that better than anything. I don't think there's any show I've seen in my life that so clearly articulates the pitfalls of toxic masculinity and trying to be like the big, tough alpha bro. And yet you have a legion of fan base who's like, Walt's wife is such a bitch. It's like, you can't. it does not matter how explicit that show is, people interpret it incorrectly. And at the same time, like, so on some level, I don't want to give too much oxygen to well some people can interpret this wrong but at the same time but the the filmmaker still
0: has still has a responsibility there to get across what they want to get across
1: well and it's also like it's so leading towards a romanticized vision in the filmmaking that at a certain point it yeah it is irresponsible Mm -hmm. and it is like even if i well the other side of it is like even if no one watches american history x and gets the wrong messages from it, so to speak, and comes away with it, feeling emboldened in their bigotry rather than challenged. I think the ideas spread in those images are wrong regardless. And that's ultimately the, the, the greater sort of indictment. Like maybe no one interprets it incorrectly, but what it's trying to put forth or what, maybe not what it's trying to put forth, but what it is putting forth is not okay. It's, it's inappropriate and it's uh, sickening in a lot of ways. Um, and it's frustrating because it is a film that I think I would give the director Tony K the benefit of the doubt and say I don't think he was trying to make a film. Yeah, I that, don't think so either. That romanticized and fetishized neo Nazis, but in part he did.
0: Yeah, and which yeah, and that's when you think of it like that. Like Tony K, when this movie came out, I'm like, okay, he's let's keep our eye on him, <laughs> and. Nope, <laughs> like yeah. he, his career, he's a music video director, but I mean, so was Fincher. And now Fincher has some amazing, some of the best movies out there. He kind of has just kept doing music videos and then like a few documentaries and he hasn't really kicked off his career. And I kind of get it now. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's because you don't really have like the subtlety you need with with themes like this and with topics like this. He just doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. or at least he didn't in 1998 so
1: well and there's something else too like it's it's less apparent in your moment per se but in doing this story about this this neo-nazi brothers you are embroiled in in the most uh violent white supremacy imaginable i'm not saying that the film you shouldn't have films that explore racism from the point of view of the worst bigots i think that human condition human experience that should be told and explored, but it is a bit bizarre how much the film hinges its narrative on this sort of redemption arc when the crime he has committed is so heinous and abjectly awful and irredeemable in a lot of ways, especially in the context of a film that is grounded in such a realism that it is, or at least a more, maybe realism is the wrong word, but it's trying to address serious issues and real world issues in a very direct way for it to hinge on Ed Norton redeeming himself is like really kind of gross. And the more, you know, time passes and I sit with it, it's like, I don't know how I'm like that in and of itself is to me a problem. And to some extent I remember reading, I don't know how true this is that the original ending for the film is after uh, his brother spoilers gets killed by someone from a black gang the last shot was supposed to be the Ed Norton character shaving his head again. And it's like, despite all of what Hmm. he's presumably learned, he falls right back into the bigotry. And I think in some ways that ending would have made that, would have fit that better because turning it into like this tragic redemption story for these two is like, (sighs) it feels like in some ways the sympathy of the film is really given to the wrong characters. And not to say young men who get swallowed up in white supremacist ideology are not also in some ways uh, victims of that hatred and are in a lot of ways used and manipulated and sold on ideologies that, even beyond being hateful, don't actually help them. They may still be victims too, but they are not necessarily the victims who are probably most worthy of sympathy and identification and giving them their story. So... Yeah, it's 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 a whole it's a whole mess, this movie. (laughs) It really is. Um so yeah. I got the boot
0: for my collection, that's for sure. That's the most uh no more snap case.
1: That's the most crushing, I think, of any uh (laughs) fate a film can befall. And that's the ultimate I fell out of love with it. It was in I bought it for the collection and then I discarded it.
0: It is not, that's right.
1: Yeah. Uh, I need to rewatch it just so I can update my Letterboxd score because that five is not accurate <laughs> at all. Because even like having like just thinking through it and seeing clips since it's like yeah, it doesn't. No, it doesn't hold up. Like Ed Norton's performance, I think is still amazing. Um, and I think Edward Furlong is very good in it too. But mm. it's in service of something that's uh, uh, really flawed and um. Again, not near, I mean, even the title, like American History X, again, like when you're a teenager, it's like, wow, (laughs) this must be so important and smart and, you know, and I think part of it too is, again, like on some level, I'll give the film this, when you grow up watching movies that deal with racism in a way that's like so handheld for children, like what if we all just got along, you know, and like even movies that are ostensibly for adults like Green Book now, which was before I was, a or long after I was a teenager, but you know, fits that mold or stuff like Driving Miss Daisy. When you see a film that, for whatever it's faults, is dealing with it in a much more direct way, it does seem like you're all of a sudden diving into way more adult territory. And then as you get older, realizing, oh, it's actually not just as juvenile, but it is. there's a naivety at play as well. I mean, even, not that we need to spend too much more time on this movie, I suppose, (laughs) but I think about there's the flashback scene with Ed Norton's father, uh, before that character dies and it's like before ed norton has you know gone down the rabbit hole and become radicalized in this this hateful way and they're talking about affirmative action and the dad's i like all oh, these blacks who get you know a job because they get you know favored by this system and it's like the way it's presented in the film in this flashback that's sort of explaining the character it's like the character had never had a racist thought in his life <laughs> and then his dad gave a very, you know, like standard I'm not racist, but speech. Yep. and that was like the one step that put him on the worldview of like curb stomping a black man. yeah, it's, like, it's that's really simplistic and naive. yeah, obviously,
0: they're going for the the idea that, okay, you learn from home. and if if his dad is continually, but it's a continual thing, right? He's continually giving those messages. But this scene that scene is so like, ham-fistedly written that they're trying mm-hmm. to basically pack in a life of that into one dinner and it does not does not fly no
1: and frankly like there's such a I'm not saying that like you know the affirmative action ranting people are not being racist I think they are but there's also a world of difference between you know the old white dad who's grumpy that blacks are getting a handout and murder like mm-hmm. there's such a like And I understand the Ed Norton characters, his dad dies and it's tragic, but it's just, it's so, and it's, it's tricky thing because the, the ways in which people fall into hateful ideology are complex and multifaceted. And they're also different depending on who and where. Um, So I don't envy the filmmakers for trying to represent that, but it's just so simple and basic. And even the speech that, you know, Ed Furlong's character gives at the end in voiceover of like, and he is a high schooler, I suppose, so it's not out of character that it would be kind of dumb and basic, but it's like, hate is baggage, you got to let go. And for a film that's reveled in so much hateful imagery and iconography, and in ways that are often really alluring and seductive, for its final concluding message to be, you got to let go of hate because it's bad for you, is like, that's insufficient. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. cannot go to these extremes, and then that's your message.
0: Yeah. Yeah. By American History X. yeah, out of the collection.
1: R.I.P. R- <laughs> um, well, uh, I guess we'll... I was going to say we'll make it a little bit lighter, but there is a sort of political subtext to uh, my moment and why I dislike it. Uh, but maybe before we can get to that, we can get to me being a big old cheater because for a little moment, this is not little at all. <laughs> so Fatal Attraction uh, and the ending of Fatal Attraction specifically, which is when... I mean, for anyone who doesn't know the story of Fatal Attraction, I imagine you do, but, you know, Michael Douglas has an affair with Glenn Close, and at the time, it seemed like we're adults. We can, you know, have sex, and we'll not tell your wife, and it's fine, but then, uh-oh, Glenn Close is actually crazy and starts stalking him and ruining his life and she's going to expose the affair and blah, blah, blah. The affair eventually does get exposed, and, you know, it starts escalating in violence, and then at the end of the film, Glenn Close invades... Uh, the home that Michael Douglas and his wife and daughter are staying at. And is like this crazy woman wielding a knife. Then Michael Douglas wife shoots her with a gun. The end. Ian, I know oh, you haven't seen the spoilers. Film, I, I hope haven't hope seen you... it. What are you doing? I hope you enjoyed my <laughs> rendition of the plot. Um, you know, that film education really comes to to use in moments like this. So the first time I saw this movie again, teenager, my reasons for liking it were not complicated. I thought it was a really effective thriller. And in a lot of ways, I still do think it's a really effective thriller. Uh, Adrian Lyne, the director, uh, this is most certainly his most famous film. It's not his best. That would be his next one, Jacob's Ladder, which is still great. But um, this was like really captured the sort of pop culture zeitgeist. It was second highest grossing film of its year, was nominated for Best Picture. It's still a cultural reference point. Uh, It inspired the erotic thriller genre. And I think there's a lot about it that works really well. Michael Douglas is perfectly cast as sleazy 80s businessman who is awful and does awful things, but he That's has Michael enough Douglas. charisma that you will follow him as he does these things like he's he's the master at that specific character. Um, I think Adrian Line generates a lot of suspense and tension from it. I think things escalate really nicely. And most importantly, Glenn, Co- Glenn Close gives an amazing performance as the villain. Mm-hmm. She is captivating. And it's one of the most famous villain characters in film for a reason. However, the ending strikes me as being a big problem for two main reasons um, that kind of dovetail into each other. Uh, One is just that it's stupid. You know, the whole point of the character is that she's like... You know, she's kind of a lot of what she's doing, even though she's unstable and in some ways she's written in a convenient way of being crazy. So sometimes she's really calculating and smart and other times she's more erratic. So the writers can have her do whatever she wants. But a lot of what she's doing to Michael Douglas is this the social pressure because of this affair and the consequences if that's revealed and, you know, the ways in which he's responsible and guilty for this, too, because. I mean, yeah, they both had this extramarital affair, but she's not married and he is. He's ultimately the guiltier person. Um, and th- that tension runs through it. Th- but so then at the end, when she just shows up at the house with a knife and is just basically a slasher villain to be shot down by the the virtuous woman in the film, uh, which is something we'll get to, it really deflates a lot of what made the film interesting and a lot of what made the film a little bit more substantive than just, you know, a person tormenting a family. You know, part of the appeal, I think, of the erotic thriller genre when it's done well is not just that like, ooh, it's both sexy and creepy. It's this intermingling of like the things you want and desire that, you know, maybe you shouldn't coming to haunt you. And there's that interplay of guilt and the film completely abandons that by the end. She's just a monster to be killed, uh, which also leads to the more political critique I want to make of the film, which I'm really drawing directly from Pauline Kael's review. But the film very much sets up this dichotomy of what femininity looks like and can be really read as like a response to second wave feminism, where you have the Glenn Close character, Alex, who is a career woman. She's single. She's ambitious. She is smart. She pursues sex outside of the bounds of making babies, you know. And then you've got the Ann Archer character, who's Michael Douglas's wife, who is a housewife. She's beautiful. She's a picture of traditional femininity. Exists in the domestic space, um, and her primary role in the film is as Douglas's, you know, wife and then mother to their, his child and caregiver. And the film very explicitly positions the ambitious career woman as the evil man-eating monster, and the the wife and symbol of traditional womanhood as as the hero who thwarts the villain. Uh, that sucks. That's really like awful and bad. And if you think, to some extent, oh, you're being too political. You're getting too caught up in the politics. One, wait till we get to my next movie. But two, um, fair enough. What I would also say is that again, on a strictly narrative level, just looking at the literal plot, it's much dumber and less interesting. Because the original ending of the film, which was changed because of test audience screenings, those pesky test audiences, was that Alex kills herself, and in her suicide note, it's or not sorry, I don't even think it is a suicide note, but basically Dan seems responsible. The story that gets put forth to the police is that Michael Douglas had this affair and tried to cover it up and he killed this woman. And the movie ends with him being arrested and a st- uh, presumably going to prison. And it's like, that's so much better as an ending one, because it is like this, it is a bit more psychological and a bit more, mm-hmm. it's more clever. Um, you still have the framing in some ways of, the the career ambitious woman who's bad and the housewife who's good but it also keeps the focus not on either of them but on Douglas and his sin he cheats he uh you know breaks his social contract he pays the consequences and you can also read that as being regressive if you want and maybe it is but just as a narrative you know it's very right. it's very clean he you know the opening sets this up this flaw and eventually it's paid off. Test audiences didn't like that. It was too sad. So instead we get a monster who invades the home and gets shot down by the good guys and everyone lives heavily, happily ever after. And first time seeing it, thought it was caught up in the excitement of it and the performances. Second time, you know, those things already, the substance is more at the forefront and you realize how flimsy that substance is. So while it's not a film that I hate, I still wouldn't, I enjoy it and I would recommend it it is certainly not a great movie by any estimation in my eyes anymore.
0: It reminds, on oddly enough, it reminds me a lot of Greek mythology and a lot of something that people have a lot of problems with, with those old stories, because it, Hera, the wife of Zeus, is constantly punishing the women that he sleeps with. Usually, even if it's their, like, I mean, Zeus is a, bastard so even if it's like against their will she'll still punish the women all the time she'll turn them into a bear or a tree or whatever they do they always turn people into things in Greek mythology <laughs> but it's kind of the same idea it's like like uh Hera maybe turn that fury on your husband and uh where it's supposed to be I kind of get the same vibe from this so maybe they're yeah. just drawing from the classics Dan
1: maybe maybe <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a great point. But yeah, like, I mean, it is this, you know, the way that and even if you don't want to get wrapped up in like my my political critique, which given our audience, I don't think will be an issue. But even if you don't just narratively, it's so much less satisfying. You know, the movie starts off with him Mm -hmm. performing this betrayal. And then by the end, he's just a victim of a villain like that's just inherently less dramatically compelling than a character who suffers the consequences of his own actions.
0: Yeah, you're right. I guess that's why they say that endings are the hardest part of a movie. And honestly, most movies just kind of peter out. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. there there really aren't a lot of movies that have those great endings. Um, but, like, you just outlined a much better alternative.
1: Yeah, this movie at one point yeah. did have, if not a great ending, then an appropriate one.
0: So it is disappointing that they were... So what do you think the reason is? They think that audiences would revolt against something like that it was not there was
1: test screenings and test screenings thought the ending was too depressing right yeah it was this fun thriller and then it ended in a way that was sad um which again is like the great uh ignorances of test screen test audiences um scorsese has an amazing interview where he talks about like you know test audiences being like well i didn't like that character i thought they were unlikable it's like they're the villain not supposed to like them. <laughs> and I think there's, you know, like the ending is depressing. Yeah, it's kind of supposed to be, you know, it's, it is very dour and dark. And to an extent, it is less exciting. Like the cops just pull up and they're like, Mr. So and so, blah, blah, blah. And they take him away and that's it. And it's like, you know, on one level, you could say, well, the movie doesn't really have a climax. But again, you're talking about it's an exciting story, but it's ultimately a story about two people and in a relatively more mundane setting. You know, like Alex does some things that are uh, pretty malicious and, and hurtful, but she's also just like a violent person with a mal intent. You know, she's not Hannibal Lecter, like she's not a right. super criminal for it to end in this very over the top home invasion way. Yeah, it may be more exciting and a very basic vulgar level, but it's so much less uh, true to what the material was. And I don't want to overhype like, oh, if the, if the movie had the original ending, it would be it would still be great. I don't think it necessarily would be, mm-hmm. but it would certainly have more integrity. That's fair. So. All
0: right. Well, I, when I watch this, I guess I'll know how it ends.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, <laughs> I won't really expect lucky. a great ending. I mean, the fact that like it literally is and I, I could imagine the filmmakers might have thought themselves in the catch 22 or it's like it's too violent if and too upsetting if michael douglas kills her but then the flip side of that is that now that that imagery of like the the housewife as the good woman is so much stronger uh which is why michael douglas's daughter should have killed her it (laughs) should have been she's like seven (laughs) and she you know just like chuck her off a roof that'd be amazing um (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting too because it is an example though of how like a movie that I fell out of love with, but I still think that Glenn Close performance is fantastic. Okay. Like it is like one know. of those iconic performances. She for get nominated? She... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, she she was. This, this was when I think this was her first <clears throat> nomination. She lost a share for Moonstruck, which is a movie I need to rewatch because I feel like it'll be the opposite of a movie that I didn't really care for and then grew on me. Because oh really? I look back and like I think I was mean about that movie. um because there's some fun stuff in there snap out of it nick cage young and both really greasy looking but really hot at the same time like how does he pull it off i don't know
0: superman himself nick cage don't even go there cgi Superman. i watched
1: the flash and i forgot to log it on letterboxd and or not the flash well it is the flash but i also just conflated it with ant-man and the Wasp: quantum mania because i just realized all these movies are blurring together in my brain (laughs) not unlike the worlds at the end of the flash, they're just crashing together. Just this barrage of like, ah, uh,
0: it hurts. Spectacular.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, good pick. life. I fell out of love with <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, good pick, Dan. Um, okay. I'm going to go to one that, I mean, when people have complicated relationships with movies that they love or movie franchises that they love, what comes up more than star Wars. So let's talk about episode two attack of the clones. So just to set the mood, I was just out of high school when this movie came out and. Very, very, very excited, (laughs) very excited. So, and when I watched it, like I was, even when I left the theater, I was pretty pumped about it. Like I was like, okay, that had so much stuff in it. Um, and then I read like Roger Ebert's, this is like the first Star Wars movie Roger Ebert didn't like, he gave it like one or two stars or something. And I'm like, Roger, did you not see that Yoda had a lightsaber? What's going on? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, so I was, I was all on board with Attack of the clones and Phantom it's Like back when I saw these movies, I was all on board with them. Um, and the moment I'm going to point out is it's more like a visual moment. Sort it's, right after the big fight that in the arena on Geonosis and then Yoda comes and saves the day with the clone troopers. And then they leave the arena and they go out to the, to the landscape and suddenly this big battle erupts and these two sides of the battle, the clone army and then the droid army, they clash and there's, and it's big and Epic and you even have Yoda. And he's like to the central command center, take me in (laughs) and, And when I saw this movie, I was like, this is exciting. This is like, there is
1: (laughs) he was like, this is
0: awesome. (laughs) We're in full war mode. Like I've never, we've never seen a land battle like this in Star Wars or really any like and if you think about it, the only time you see battles like this is like historical epics because two towers wasn't going to come out until later that year and two towers kind of really kicked off and afterwards, like it seemed like every fantasy sci-fi movie had to have some scene of two armies clashing together that just seemed to be the norm even like Alice in wonderland for some reason <laughs> like first oh. anyway so i thought we this know. was really i thought this was exciting and i was like this is epic star wars is stepping it up a level we're getting full-scale battles the clone wars has kicked off here we go yoda is a general in an army and he's saying he's telling people to take him to the command center. Wow. And, <laughs>
1: and worse not make one gradient.
0: <laughs> so, obviously my feelings on Attack of the Clones has cooled over the years because the sheen has come off. I was blinded by hype and I realized that. And I start seeing the flaws. The big ones being A... This is absolutely a CGI fest like no other to the point where it it looks plasticky, <laughs> and And that's something that Phantom Menace has over it. Because even though Phantom Menace had a lot of that as well, there was still a lot of like real elements to that world that they kind of did away with with Attack of the Clones where almost everything is fake, which is an epidemic in movie making right now. Um, and so that takes the sheen off a little bit. I don't like the way that they deal with the Jedi. Like when I, when you watch the original trilogy, really the only Jedi's you see are Obi-Wan and then Luke who learns to be one. But based on that, you can, and based on, Oh, I guess Yoda. And then based on what they're talking about and the way they talk about it, they're kind of like these mythical warriors that only show up every now and again. And they're very legendary, but in attack of the clones, they're just like, I don't know. A police force and that's a little disappointing right the fact that they're police force and they're almost like a bureaucracy and you're like well that's not really the jedis i've built in my head that's a little disappointing and they also die really easily (laughs) (laughs) like that was kind of a running joke in our friends group it's like yeah jedi die really easily (laughs) Mm -hmm. they just kind of get shot and killed off all over the place all around uh, sam jackson there um and even the yoda line like i don't know yoda should either be really silly or philosophical like he is both in the empire strikes back and but hearing him in his weird way of speaking like just mundane everyday orders like <laughs> i don't know it's weird it's it's kind of jarring um mm-hmm. so I've cooled on it. And then I, I haven't, I'm not even going to mention the acting. I'm not even going to mention the very poorly constructed romance. We're not going there. But I mean, but
1: just... it's I, I, it's the one bit that I, I still think about constantly from the, they're very dated now, but Red Letter Media is like Plinkett reviews of the movies where he, in the Attack of the Clones, he's a whole bit where he's tallying all of Anakin's hits and misses in terms of courting a woman. <laughs> and after going through this like absurd list just ending with like i take it all back george lucas i officially present you with the trophy for man who understands women you've earned <laughs> it my friend <laughs> um yeah i will say there's something i think really interesting in the prequels in the basic idea of taking down the the myth of what the jedi were in the idea that like you imagine them as being these very like mythic almost wandering samurai warriors, righting wrongs, bringing justice. And then when you see them at their peak, they are these bureaucratic cops and then soldiers. And I think there's something interesting in there. And I also think the last Jedi does a pretty good job sort of re bringing that into the fold, making it deliberate by having, you know, that scene where Luke says, you know, at the height of their powers, they, you know, cultivated the Darth Vader and allowed a Sith Lord to take power and like all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's a really interesting idea and there's actually something really brave and especially now in an era where Star Wars seems to be about making sure everything you like is as cool and awesome as it ever was, mm-hmm. about saying actually the Jedi uh, were pretty corrupt and not that great. I don't know if the films at the prequels specifically fully pull that off because yeah. in moments like this it does not feel like oh wow, they've they're they're just these like thugs and they're just these violent war mongering you know barbarians basically it feels like you're supposed to think wow this is awesome and epic Mm um which i did which so it worked (laughs) uh but it is like there's something there like the prequels are these movies that like i'm not ready to call good by any stretch but they are fascinating and i will probably continue to go back to them
0: i'll hold that the general story is good like, I think that George Lucas is ultimately the story that he wants to tell is interesting and it's different than the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. And the core of it is still pretty strong. Yeah. It's just the, the, the outline of it, it
1: is good. Yeah. Um, there's just the execution is is where it stumbles. And this to me is one of the biggest ones because I think if you had, if, you, if Revenge of the Sith was in part about not just oh now Darth Vader's here in the empire forms but about how the flaws in the Jedi order directly contribute to that downfall that's an interesting story and it just doesn't i don't think it 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 commits to that
0: i think yeah but there are elements there like there are elements there anakin's frustration with you know mm. the fact that the jedi is not really helping him with his yep. problems and so there's there are elements there and i think that george is trying to george lucas is trying I mean, to fact tap that into that somewhere
1: the jedi somewhere. are complacent with like a slave planet yeah yeah and they'll abduct a child that's not a, from that's there. Not a good look <laughs> yeah they'll abduct a child from there if he can be useful to them but even stuff like the jedi order being like like anakin and phantom menace being like too old to begin the training is like he's like eight like how young are you starting these kids And it's like, is that like a criticism of this? Like this weirdo cult that abducts you as a child and is like, no sex ever. Uh, And you have to devote yourself to this weird religion. Like you can't make that choice as an infant or however young these kids are. And it's like, is this a deliberate sort of critique or unpeeling of their ideology and reveal? Or is it not? Like, I don't know. And it's, it's a lot of the prequels walk that line in a way where it's like, there's something to this that's really subversive and interesting, but I don't think it's sticking the landing more poignantly and pertinently. I think for me is aesthetically, it looks like junk and that I think is the bigger flaw in the scene specifically is that, yeah, like it it's aged very poorly. I can see why on a first viewing and I was too young to appreciate it in any kind of context like this, but on a first viewing as a, as a young man, young teen, this would seem like so cool and like such mm-hmm. an evolution in in the star wars action scene um but now it is so apparent that like it's so reliant on digital effects that are not they're not horrible they're mostly fine but they don't they're not convincingly real and they're way too announced in the scene uh and it's it's perfect you mentioned two towers because yeah within the same year jackson is making Lucas eat his lunch because that yeah. final battle is such a perfect blend of digital effects clearly. Cause they don't have 10,000 urukai, Um, <laughs> But you've got like, you do have actors in prosthetics in costumes and again, like old fashioned, like you have a, a big wide shot where it's fake. So it looks like, and then you film like five people right. in a wide shot. So it looks like there's a lot, you know, very classic tricks and that battle scene is still extraordinary
0: it's still lauded as one of the one of the greats
1: as it should be i'm wondering if when you watch two towers that was the moment you're like maybe attack of the clones isn't that great (laughs) like you (laughs) watch the battle there and you're like oh
0: (laughs) well i mean two towers is pretty good but it didn't have yoda whip out a lightsaber
1: (laughs) i mean do we (laughs) want to talk about that and how that's like the worst thing Like,
0: it's uh it's it's yeah, it's silly in retrospect, but
1: it also like to me, it just like even beyond like Yoda being a character who's defined by wisdom and and philosophy and his thoughtfulness, making him do flippy action stuff is just kind of a waste. I also just find it looks bad, like it's unexciting. It's so you have to compensate so much for the massive size difference between the characters there's no actual tension in the action it just feels like a blur of special effects i mean you compare the final lightsaber duel in attack of the clones to the final duel in phantom menace you know say what you will about that movie when they start fighting at the end it's pretty exciting just on a physical level and it's not in attack of the clones the
0: (laughs) sorry just talking about like the two towers and and like historical epics i remember you probably were too young to even know this, but there was like a fake trailer like a year before and you had to like, there was no YouTube. So it was like, you downloaded it off of um, LimeWire or things like that. And they tried to pass it off as the actual episode two trailer, but it was like clips of the actors in other movies. And then there was, (laughs) they actually was a scene like the Braveheart battle scene, except that they Photoshopped all the broadswords with, uh, lightsabers so you thought it was like a jedi army going to attack <laughs> well
1: was, given your braveheart fandom i have else. to ask did you make that video
0: i mean we'll never know <laughs>
1: <laughs> fair
0: fair um what did what was your thoughts on what the clone wars were when you saw like star wars what do you think the no Clone idea. Wars were because it was like, like a short mention in the first movie
1: well, the thing is, like, Attack of the Clones came out, I was eight years old, right. or I was turning eight that year, so I really don't know what, if anything, I thought Yeah, the Clone it probably Wars would was. have already
0: been established.
1: I mean, or even, like, when I first, because I, I saw Phantom Menace in theaters, I, I'm told, I don't really remember, but that's what my parents tell me, it was probably my first movie, Um, and I know I watched the other movies... Uh, on vhs and i liked them a lot but i don't remember what i if i thought anything about what the clone wars were mm-hmm. um so i really don't know
0: because what i thought for the longest time was that all the jedis had clones of themselves made and so h1 was fighting oh, themselves sure and i was like that's pretty cool
1: that would was uh, yeah it
0: was turns out it wasn't
1: that's like a big anime story. <laughs> I mean, that's like the classic in like superhero stories. They all have to fight their evil double. So that's kind of what it I always thought it was. Well, I mean, well, in the alternate world where you got to make the prequels, it could have been that. There we go. That could have been the Clone Wars. I mean, that's the other thing with the the battle that I find an issue, and it's it's not an original criticism by any stretch, but it's like it's droids. Which are not even in like Star Wars context. These droids are not like C three PO and R two D two. They're not sentient. They're like they're basically ships and clones. Yeah. Who at least in this film are presented as being expendable drones. So it's like there's very little to. And the Jedi, the important Jedi, are basically indestructible. So Mm -hmm. what is there to latch on to? Other than just the initial burst of action. I will say, I mean, the, the, the contingency of people who are championing the prequels is like masterpieces of digital filmmaking are growing. I don't understand it. I don't think I'll ever understand it, but I don't know. They're out there. Maybe you'll fall back in love with this movie. I mean,
0: I want to, (laughs) like, I want to like the prequels. I do. And I'm trying to, it just feels like it's a constant struggle to try to figure out where I sit with them. Where I sit with them is, they weren't really that well made, but they're still on my shelf. So
1: I mean, this is why you need to let your heart open to the idea of owning movies that aren't that good. Like that's <laughs> I, really what I that own is. Attack of the Clones. Yeah, but you're clearly struggling with it. I know. You know, you're like the really hardcore Catholic that gets divorced and is just like, oh, I'm going to hell, like. <laughs> You need to accept that you're not going to hell for this is really what it comes down to.
0: Honestly, I think I'm in an okay place with it right now. Okay. Yeah. I think that I'm like, I understand all of its flaws. I get that now. I'm well aware of it. I can just, okay, this is just a lesser Star Wars movie and that's just what it is.
1: And you're okay with it being on your shelf.
0: Yeah. So what about Rise of Skywalker? It's there, but I'm not. Oh, is it? I'm not comfortable with it yet.
1: Oh, I cannot <laughs> believe I'm shocked it's there.
0: It's there. That one I've got some I've got a I've got a while to to kind of get my. Are head
1: solo around. and rogue one also there. No. Ooh, interesting. So you're very much mainline. Yeah. But you can interesting. Does it bother you that Rogue One and Solo are probably both better than Rise of Skywalker?
0: I mean <laughs> a little.
1: Fascinating. <laughs> See, you're so like high standards for your collection because like I, you know, I I own Space Cop. Like I don't, you know, have (laughs) quite as (laughs) uh, firm boundaries as far as what makes it to the shelf. I have my standards, but I'm flexible to let in things that aren't good if I have some affinity for them in another context. But you don't break often.
0: No, I'm telling you, Star Wars complicated relationship.
1: Like, you only own the Alien movies you like, which I think are the first three. Yeah. Um, You know, the Back to the Future thing we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, like you only own a couple of James Bond movies. Yeah, I own two. <laughs> Is it Dr. No and...
0: Cena Royale.
1: Wow. See, this is also why the collections are good is because you can justify owning something like Moonraker or it's like, (laughs) I'm going to want to watch it sometimes. But if it was just sitting there by itself, I'd probably be embarrassed when it's in the box, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, that's where we're
1: at. Fascinating. Well, uh, I think I'll uh, drop the mood by getting serious and talking about uh, 1971 police thriller with the name of Dirty Harry, which mm-hmm. I don't think will be too hard to guess why I don't really like this movie as much as I used to, but why I loved it in the first place. I saw it probably about 14. Uh, I was coming off of watching the Dollars movies, and I thought Clint Eastwood was, you know, the most just commanding action presence I'd seen in a movie. And then I got for Christmas this massive, I've talked about this in the, in the DVD Dumpster Dive videos, this box set of Clint Eastwood movies. It was 35 of them he made at Warner Brothers. Some as director, some as actor, some as both. And the first film in the set was the first Dirty Harry. And I knew about the film from Reputation. I knew some of the famous lines. And then watching it, I was like, wow, this is such a gripping thriller. It's such a, it's it's a 70s action movie. So it's slower than, you know, what action movies would become. But it's got this hard edge sense of violence. It's got this no-bullshit, Macho hero whose masculinity is apparent but still understated. It's got this maniacal villain. It has these action scenes that are a bit more restrained than you know your diehards or lethal weapons, but they still are really exciting. Um, you know, Don Siegel it directs with this like ruthless efficiency. There's such a like hard edge to like every frame. This is awesome. And I rewatched it a couple years later. I'm like, yeah this is still awesome. And I rewatched it about a week ago and I was like, Oh, 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 uh, I'm not sure about this one anymore. And this was not a total surprise to me because while I've remembered dirty Harry, still very fondly through the years, as I've gotten older, I've grown more weary of its substance, which basically boils down to cops should be allowed to do whatever they want. Uh, It's it puts this forth very clearly that, and it says it directly pretty much out loud in dialogue in the movie, that the things, the the laws and regulations you have in place to protect citizens, things like Miranda rights, uh, things like, you know, cops needing to have uh, subpoenas say to search premises or, you know, authority to like bestow to, uh you know, perform in certain ways or to do certain things to suspects. Um, that they can't just do those things, these things that protect civilians, those things are just barriers and obstacles that prevent hard-nosed guys like Harry from doing justice. And if Harry could just shoot who he knew was bad and torture who he knew was a kidnapper, the world would be a better place. And the only reason the film is able to get away with this thesis in any context is because it draws such a simplistic uh, version of a villain for Harry to fight against in uh, Scorpio, who's this... Uh, loosely inspired by the Zodiac killer, serial killer, who's inflicting chaos around the city. We know explicitly he is the bad guy and he's the villain. We've seen him do these awful deranged things. So when Harry shoots him in the leg, try and find a teenager and then starts, you know, putting his foot against the bullet wound and torturing him. Well, it's violent, but we know, well, he's, he's kidnapped a teenage girl and he may have, you know, assaulted her. Like Harry's got to do this it only works because it's constructed this straw man. And the moment I want to pick is emblematic of both why I thought this movie was so great as a teenager and why that straw man and its implications uh, as an argument I find so odious now. And it's a brief moment when uh, Harry has sort of spotted Uh, Scorpio from, I keep almost calling him Serpico. It's a very (laughs) occupational hazard. of This movie, he spotted him across a roof and they engage in a bit of like a sniper battle back and forth. And Scorpio has a machine gun. And at one point he just starts shooting at this big. Yeah, exactly. Uh, This big neon sign that says Jesus saves. And he's shooting up the sign and it's, you know, sparking and breaking apart. And it just cuts to this image of Scorpio cackling maniacally as this machine gun fires and blows up the sign. And you can understand why a teenager would think this is awesome. You got a cackling maniac firing a machine gun. You have the sign exploding. They're very exciting images. Again, Siegel shoots it with this precision and ruthlessness. It's a hard edged image. It's it's mean and lean and it's exciting, but also it plays very much into that straw man the film draws of this killer where like, look at this cackling maniac. He's just shooting the sign and laughing. he's so deranged and awful. Like he's so, he's just all evil all the time. We need a guy like Harry who breaks through all the bureaucracy and just shoots the bad guys to get what's done needs to be done. And yeah, I find that that message is pretty gross (laughs) and pretty uh, unhelpful and um, really hard to ignore. And I'm not a stranger to suspending you know, my own ethical qualms in certain contexts. Like you think about like the Lethal Weapon movies, the characters are pretty flagrantly uh, violating sort of citizens' rights. I don't think cops should actually shoot diplomatic uh, figures on the hunches they have that they're bad guys. But those movies also exist in this more heightened, dramatic action movie space that it's very acknowledged. This isn't real. Right. And it's not as fantastical as like a superhero movie, but it's comparable to that. But Dirty Harry is in it's ripped from real world crime in the Zodiac Killer. It's it's got the style that emphasizes grit and realism and verisimilitude, which makes that harder to ignore. And then it also makes it really hard to ignore when the film is stopping to have scenes where Harry says the law is crazy you're going to let this madman go free, he's going to hurt people. And it's like, it's really stacking the deck at all levels to make this argument. And I can suspend my uh, objections to that to a point. But when that becomes really what the film is about, primarily, I can't really suspend that anymore. So while I still like the film for the reasons that I loved it as a teen, it's I still think it's very well made. I think Eastwood was basically born to play this character, and I think their isolated scene construction moment to moment is largely excellent. Um, the substance of it, it, there's no getting around the fact that it is uh rather insidious in what it's arguing. Yeah,
0: I can see that. I can see that. It's this was even in the Zodiac movie, wasn't it? Didn't they go yep. see this in theater? Mm-hmm. I guess I thought that was the movie. Yeah. Um, Ruffalo
1: even makes a comment about like, uh, no due process in the movies. Right.
0: Do you, well, how do you feel about the famous, uh, you? do you feel lucky scene at the beginning? Do you feel it has the same underlying message behind that?
1: So that scene and the movie, the reason I rewatched it is going to be apparent <clears throat> in a video soon. Um, and it'll talk about that scene in detail, but yeah, in a sense I do. I mean, the, the appeal of that scene is being able to indulge in the power fantasy of dirty harry mm-hmm. is being able to indulge in being the authority figure who gets to shoot the bad guys and again it's very much constructed as like you know he's he's not even policing he's out to like get a hot dog um and not only does he look like super badass cool action man during the scene he barely moves he fires his very select shots he has this cool line about do i feel lucky he looks handsome and and well composed but the construction of the scene is Harry is idly minding his business. There is a disturbance against the public in the form of this robbery and Harry stops it. It's again, this, this idea of like, there are bad guys in the world and cops need to be given the power to shoot them down. And that only works in a, in a situation where you've constructed a unambiguous bad guy that is is so clearly defined and so like and the other thing is in terms of like you know it's based on a real serial killer and you could talk about like the genuine anxiety that existed in America in the late 60s and early 70s But how do you police these kind of violent crimes and it's a complex question it was then it still is I will not pretend that I have the answers but I think something that stands out to me and how the film constructs how the film constructs that debate and that serial killer Is even in the realms of violent serial killers, Scorpio is just a composite of like awful evil. The Mm -hmm. fact that in his letter he says, "I will shoot either a Catholic priest or an n-word." Like, there's no pattern to who he kills. He'll kill clergymen. He'll kill black people. He'll kill children. He'll kill young women. Like serial killers tend to fall. They have a pattern in who they who they attack. This guy will kill anybody. Again, it's like he's so crazy. He's just. He's not really a person. like the film doesn't make any effort to try and understand or even attempt to grapple with like questions of motivation or backstory. And obviously, I don't want the trite American history X like one time his dad said an uncouth thing at dinner and he went evil. Um, but even compared to something like the movie Targets, which is about in part a uh, a man who just inexplicably goes on a killing spree with a sniper rifle. And it's never explained why he behaves that way. But we also have a lot of scenes of just watching him behave. And we know that he's a Vietnam veteran. You know, the films, maybe it's saying that, well, PTSD is, you know, driven him mad. Maybe it's saying that something about, you know, maybe it's making a statement about the kind of people who want to go fight in Vietnam and, and a violence that extends beyond the service. Who knows? But there is a sense of like a character and a life that brought them to this point whatever the reasons may be maybe they're on maybe no one can understand them but they are there there are reasons that exist and scorpio doesn't have that he doesn't have parents he doesn't have a world he just he blossoms in already fully defined and established as complete evil so harry has an enemy that he can thwart to justify it um And again, like that, that image of him shooting the sign is awesome on a base visceral level. It's really exciting, uh, but it's used in the context of establishing a boogeyman that can embolden the rights of citizens to be eroded.
0: Hmm. I've only seen this movie once and I liked it. I can't say, yeah, I can't say I was really thinking that deeply about uh, what it was saying, but you're making good points. I do remember kind of becoming less interested in the cop robber aspect or the cop killer aspect, and maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's because he wasn't a real person, <laughs> and maybe mm-hmm. I kind of was getting taken out of the film for that reason. Like I was like, "Well, this isn't that interesting because he, the villain's not that interesting." That might that might be it
1: yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, there's no there's no real psychology. like again, like you know, there's a quote from Roger Ebert where he's reviewing uh, I think one of the Atlas shrugged film adaptations talk about questionable <laughs> ethics in film. But he has this line where he talks about, you know, it's not enough to agree with the film. You also have to be entertained by it and thinking about like even if you are taking the film's politics at face value or not even thinking about them at all, The just the dramatic possibilities are less interesting when the villain is just a one dimensional boogeyman that has no substance beyond that. And again, like to go back to your point about the the do I feel lucky scene, like that scene is a setup to the ending where he gets to do the speech again to Scorpio, but this time he gets to shoot the bad guy. You know, it's uh, paying off the audience's bloodlust. But I
0: also remember like. And again, I've only seen it once. so I, I wonder what I would think if I saw it again. But I do remember thinking that he wasn't... I don't remember him being celebrated by the film for doing that at the end. I remember thinking, like, that it... I mean, maybe it was just my own ethics that are telling me, like, that was wrong. He should not have done that. But... Maybe if I go back, I would see, oh, no, the film was kind of leading towards that and was pushing for that message. But
1: it's a fair point. I mean, they do depict the character as being a bastard to an extent, but it's also mm-hmm. the kind of like in a way that's also very, I would argue, in a very attractive light. You know, he's a bastard, but in the way that like, he says, he, it, like, the kind of people who will say stuff like, people don't like me because I tell it how it is. You know what I mean? Like, it's not yeah. glamorous, but someone's got to do it. Like, that's, you know, like, the final image of the film is Harry throwing his badge into the river. And in isolation, you can see that as being this very uh, thoughtful and introspective moment. Um, but in the context of the film, it's actually the law and the the... the things we have that are designed to protect citizens, those have restrained me from being able to enact justice and therefore I reject them. Yeah. Um, And it's not strictly a celebration, which is in some ways why it's probably in some ways a more insidious movie because if it was just, you know, he shot the bad guy. Yay. Like people are, e- can pretty easily identify, you know, propaganda say in that context. Um, But when it's framed in this more, ostensibly ambiguous way it, it well the fact that even it seems ambiguous I don't think it is I think once you start to really break it down it's really explicit about um making this argument I mean the fact that you know Scorpio is such a strong man the fact that you have scenes where Harry is kind of insane that he would need this explained to him in the first place but like you can't just shoot and torture suspects Harry <laughs> and he's like well the law is crazy and it's like <laughs> I understand that it's a movie and it's for the audience but it's also like Man, that you should know that. Um, but again, like it's encouraging the audience to identify with that, to see to see his frustration that you know the bureaucracy and the the um systems of law that protect, you know, scumbags like Scorpio, but again, that only works because Scorpio is maniacal villainy and and nothing more. Like if even if you introduce the slightest shred of nuance into that, either A, you know, the character's instead of just being crazy is disturbed in a more way of reflecting well I'll put it this way the fact part of the idea of him not having any any context for like why he's like this the film doesn't ever have to think about what in society leads to people behaving in these ways and leads to people inflicting these violent crimes it takes it as a given that that exists and they need to be stopped and i'm not saying that there's necessarily a way you can rearrange society so that violent crimes don't happen, but again, it and it extends into other crimes like the bank robbers where it's like, well, what are the, you know, the, the conditions that push people into mm-hmm. crime, violent crime? Oh, they don't matter. Like, it's just, they're violent criminals and they need to be stopped and they all fall under the one umbrella of bad guy. Uh, and the second you start to introduce ambiguity into that, that falls apart or even, You know, when when Harry's torturing Scorpio, we are fine with that as an audience because we know he's kidnapped this teenage girl. Well, what if we don't know that this is the guy who did it? Right. You know? As soon as you introduce that possibility, Harry's violations of these rights is obscene and so evil, but because it's this very simplistic version of good guy, bad guy, we accept it
0: it makes you wonder what was like going on at the time when they, when the screenwriter would have written this movie, like what was, were there current events happening, like specific events that happened that made him like want to push this message? Was that a popular public sentiment at the time that they were trying to capture? Like it it does make you wonder like, where's that coming from? Um, because it probably is coming from something going on in society at that point, like in in 1970 at some point.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's the anxiety about things like the Zodiac killer. I think it's also the, the tough on crime, you know, which Mm -hmm. is something that's, you know, Richard Nixon doesn't invent by any stretch, but he does embody that in his policies and has become in some ways becomes really the defining, one of the defining qualities of, politicians on either side of the aisle in terms of presidencies like you know even the democrat who gets elected the democrats that get elected and following like clinton and obama they push really aggressive policing bills you know clinton talking about like super predators for example so on some level i think there is this anxiety within the culture about how do you police violent crime and to give the devil its due i do think these are complex issues and I'm not saying I don't I don't know what the solution is. You know, I make YouTube videos like I don't <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, but I also think the film presents a very dishonest representation of that conversation because it's hero. While he's a bit, you know, he's dirty, hairy. He's a little a uh, little nasty. And he says mean stuff and he's kind of a jerk. He's unambiguously ethically right all the time. And the villain is a cackling maniac. Yeah. So of course it lands on the side of like if you just you know give him the authority to do what he wants, you know the right people will get killed. Uh, well, my
0: my recommendation, Dan, if you if you dislike that, don't ever watch the TV show Twenty Four. <laughs> 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 just don't do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's good advice, I suppose. Um, I can't believe Canadian hero Kiefer Sutherland would do this to me. <laughs> He is Canadian, right? I'm not making that he up. Is, yeah. Okay.
0: He is indeed.
1: So anyway, uh, if you enjoyed that rant, check out the new Eyebrow Cinema video on not Dirty Harry, but when you see the title, you'll understand how Dirty Harry will be relevant to it. There we go.
0: Perfect. Okay, so for my pick, uh, the first one was like a realizing that the movie wasn't what I thought it was. My second pick was Receding Hype. And now I'm going to go to the childhood movie that is completely different when you re- when you revisit it. Scary so that, movie. <laughs> that's not everybody's childhood movie, Dan. <laughs> um, my movie is Flight of the Navigator from 1986, and it's a it's it's kind of a movie where the a boy gets abducted by aliens, and. The idea is that he disappears and reappears eight years later. He hasn't aged, but everything else has, which is an intriguing concept. Um, and then we learn that the reason was because he was taken by an alien ship that is kind of like collecting different species from different planets. That's kind of their deal. Um, and then they bring him back, but they brought him back to the wrong time. And so he's trying to fix that to get back to his old time. When I was a kid, I love this movie. And there's one scene that even now just sticks in my head. There's a scene where he's on the ship and the alien, so to speak, is really like a robot. It's almost like, you know, that wheel robot from WALL-E, like the autopilot or whatever. It's sort of like that. Like it's basically just a big eye that kind of moves around um, called Max. And there's a scene where him, the kid who's, I don't even remember the kid's name but he's they he's like trying to he's like we need some music and so so max like taps into the radio stations and finds a i get around by the beach boys <laughs> so i could have brought this up last week in our diegetic movie music choices um and so they're dancing around and really silly dancing around and then there's like this little alien who's like dancing with his fingers like this he's like nah, 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 nah. and that image is stuck in my head for years like i you know when you're a kid there's just certain movie moments that you think are hilarious and you love and you'll just watch them and rewind them and watch them and rewind them and i kind of get the sense that maybe that's what i did to this movie is i just kept watching this part of the movie over and over again because i remember it so clearly um a few years ago i decided hey i should rewatch the flight of the navigator oh no that was that was a mistake. Some things should be left in the past people. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Cuz it was a lot it was I wasn't really sure what I was hoping to get out of rewatching it again. Um but it was a lot more boring than <laughs> what I remember <laughs> when I was a kid. Like there's actually very little of it that takes place on that alien ship and that was where most of my memories came from. Mostly this Beach Boys song. and uh, But a lot of it takes place in the hospital. Like after he's, when he's been missing for eight years and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with him and why he's hasn't aged. And there's like this whole subplot with Sarah Jessica Parker as a nurse. And I found that boring. And I couldn't even rem- know, like I didn't remember any of that from from when I watched it when I was young. So I'm like, did I just, do we just kind of, I don't know, skip over the boring parts in our head or what. Uh, but it was kind of dull. And even the parts I remember were a lot goofier. So I'm like, sometimes there's childhood movies that are like E.T. where I will still watch E.T. at any given point because I think it's an amazing movie. But then there's other childhood movies that maybe you don't need to go back and see what it was like again. I think it probably just exists in your memory. So that's what I learned. <laughs> From Flight of the Navigator.
1: That's a very tragic story. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting to think about like movies you watch as a kid that you go back to and it's like, it's so boring. How did I watch this as a kid? And I do wonder if a lot of that is just like one, just skipping and rewatching the parts that you like. Yeah. And then that becomes your memory. But also thinking like when you're a kid and you're watching movies, like if at least me as a kid, I loved playing with toys. Mm -hmm. I loved action figures. And it's like that's half of more than half probably of the viewing is like just me making my own little stories with the toys. And then you kind of tune in when something interesting or funny is happening. That's
0: very true. I think that's that's a good point. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it is interesting like which movies hold up and which movies don't. But At the same time, I can still like think fondly on that movie, even though Mm -hmm. I will never watch it again. And I don't want to watch it again. So it's not on the shelf. (laughs) This is not on the shelf. Okay. Um, So we had a
1: movie that was on the shelf and was then tossed. Right. We have a movie that's still on the shelf because of its associations. And we have a movie that has not normal. It was never on the shelf. Yeah. Fascinating. So that's the other way that like, you know. I'm trying to think now on my own like man on the moon is a movie that I never owned. Fatal Attraction is a movie that I never owned. Dirty Harry is a movie that I have a DVD of. So I don't have quite as interesting a story, but you know Um, yeah, I've never seen this film. Um, I don't imagine I will probably ever. I,
0: you know, I don't know. There would be no reason why you would.
1: This now is the only reason I would, (laughs) Uh, you know, because it's been on the show and I feel like on some level, I probably deserve it because there's been many a time that you've watched something on, because I brought it up.
0: Transformers the Transformers, the movie. hated it. Yeah.
1: Was I transform? Oh, the animated movie, right? The that, animated movie. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's even like, I think about like you hated head, you yeah. hated, um, uh, Sid and Nancy. Like, I think honestly, <laughs> the worst ratio for hits for you on the show is me, is the stuff that I'm choosing. <laughs> Possibly.
0: Hey, you gave me some great stuff though. Paper Moon that was awesome. Yeah,
1: like head, head's awesome.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: Um yeah, I mean, I I was, it's funny though like cuz I found that for me in putting the list together, it was so quickly that I went to like movies that were teenager experiences. I don't know if like I again like scary movie one That's also really not a kid's movie. Mm -hmm. And so the relationship to it is different. I don't know if I were to have tried to approach it as like a movie that was special to me as a kid that I fell out of love with. I mean, would I say that I love the SpongeBob SquarePants movie anymore? Probably not. But I also don't know if I would say I have it in me to say I fell out of love with it because it just feels like such a that's like the natural progression of what it's like. Because I still think that movie's fine for what it is. I still think it's funny. Yeah. Um, I, I would know, be curious. That seemed out of character. <laughs> That's
0: fair. I would be curious, like, if a kid now watched it, what would they think of it? Like, question. Is it because I'm looking back on it as an adult? Does it still work as a kid's movie? I don't know.
1: And does it also work on a kid watching it in the 2020s? Right. Um, my
0: my sister-in-law is actually showing our niece like all those kind of old movies from like the early nineties, she's kind of gotten into that and she's liking quite a bit of them. I should, I should recommend this do a little experiment see if she likes it or not.
1: And the kids are liking them then.
0: Yeah. She's liking them quite a bit. Good. Like she watches like, I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know, a bunch of those nineties movies and like Richie, Mm -hmm. even things like Richie, Rich and silly movies like that. Sure. But she's enjoying them. So I'm kind of scared now. So my Flight of the Navigator experience has maybe made me think that I don't think I should ever watch Honey, I Shrunk the Kids again.
1: <laughs> Ooh, that one, though, is still like, Does it still, hold still up? talk about, well, I've never seen it, but people still talk about it. Yeah,
0: because I love that movie, too. No and one I'm...
1: talks about Flight of the Navigator. That's true. Except you right Except now. me like right literally, now. Literally, you know that thing about, like, you, you know, you die twice when you die and when the last time anyone said your name? <laughs> Flight of the Navigator has been dead for decades and you just brought it back. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> it's 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 spoken back into existence. But people still, like, have fond memories of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. So, presumably, it's still of some merit. It might not hit the way it used to. It might not be ET levels of still holding up, but yeah. they can't all be Spielberg.
0: That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, there we go. That was my third pick.
1: Well, I'm glad we ended A it on that. pick. And not Dirty Harry. Because <laughs> that was, like, fun and light.
0: yeah uh do we have time should we do a few
1: Um, Yeah, sure okay it's rock and roll all
0: right so i can't remember what i did last time but uh we did college movies a couple episodes ago so we got some responses there for our college movie moments marshall says that he oh he agrees with me sort of he says that MU, Monsters University, has a lot of great stuff, like Mike putting all this effort into scaring only to realize Sully rigged it. And the lake scene. And he says that you continue to be wrong about Shrek. So there you go. Gauntlet Throne.
1: I assume that's me who continues to be wrong about Shrek. Yes. Yes. I mean, then I don't want to be right. <laughs> you know, I will uh I will accept heresy if it means that I'm I'm true to my principles.
0: Fair. Also, uh, oh, I, I don't
1: hate Shrek. It's just like, who cares? It's Shrek. <laughs> Good God.
0: Gunner says he's <laughs> cheating, but the graduates' opening party sequence. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So he loves how uncertain Ben is and how chaotic it feels.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The graduates' an interesting one because, like, it's not really a college movie, but obviously that shadow looms over the entire thing. Um, actually right. it was interesting in the video essay course I taught in the winter, I had a student, because it was a fourth year student, so it was a graduating student, do her final video essay on revisiting, looking at the film in the 2020s as now someone on the cusp of, oh yeah, graduatehood themselves. Oh, cool. It was really interesting. It was a good video.
0: Yeah. So if you're
1: cool. listening, good job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, J-Dub, I assume is Justin, uh, easily the triple Lindy, which I assume is either a wrestling reference or a no, heavy metal res- reference?
1: neither. It's uh, it's back to school with Rodney Dangerfield. Uh,
0: yeah, okay, that makes more. That's that also jives good.
1: <laughs> Which I don't think I've ever seen in full.
0: Um, I really J- should though. <laughs> Jay Davis says that he's all for Dan tormenting Ian with fear and loathing. Yeah i've seen it already so i don't have to watch it again
1: um yeah but like if i pick it every week you'll have to eventually (laughs) relent it's like andy sending the letters to the the prison to get the library built (laughs) this is my library oh no
0: um okay to our diegetic song moments william says wilco's hate it here in boyhood he says Mm. it's a sentimental pick that takes him back to being a kid uh with road trips with his dad that's pretty cool Nice.
1: Um clatter <laughs> undefeated.
0: This one's funny because it my Owen opinion. So I was, oh, hi Owen. Uh I would like to have to say the whole Raha Jackson sequence in Boogie nights He has a beautiful yep. singing voice. And gunner says, I know everybody and their dad says this, but stuck in the middle with you for reservoir dogs. And also in dreams from Blue Velvet.
1: Ooh, yeah. Yeah, we didn't talk about David Lynch at all, but he's really good at uh diegetic needle drops. The problem is his best one ever was on Twin Peaks: The Return, which is a television no. show. <laughs> but the episode, the reason I watched probably all of Twin Peaks at a certain level is because I saw just the clip of in the universe of the show, you're in the bar, and there's the MC like introducing Nine Inch Nails and they just perform a song. And I was just captivated. And so I basically watched all of the show and then the prequel film to then get to the return to see that. And nice. then the craziest thing is that episode is so bonkers. You don't even remember that Nine Inch Nails are in it <laughs> by the time you get to the end. Like you've, you've been through the Stargate. Um, but yeah, he's really good at incorporating music into his projects, both score and uh, and soundtrack.
0: Sweet. Well, thanks for your comments, everybody. If you want to comment, uh you can do so on Spotify. We can read them out here. If you want to e- email at us, it's cinemaandseconds at gmail.com. Twitter is cinema underscore seconds. Uh, there we go. Dan, anything you want to share?
1: Uh new video I alluded to. I i would be stunned if it's out (laughs) when this comes out but it's 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 working and the work's being done and it's getting pretty close so hopefully this september you'll have the new eyebrow cinema video
0: i'm looking forward to it i know what it's about and i'm looking forward to it nice um okay well i guess the next time we talk to you all it'll be episode 100 Mm -hmm. so we're looking forward to that
1: hope you're ready for a party
0: yeah it's gonna be great um Mm -hmm. well thanks for listening i've been ian And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time. Good night.